Turn to Ephesians, the first chapter today. Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to speak the second part of a message that I began last week. On Wednesday nights, we've been unpacking this particular passage in Ephesians 1. I want to use this today, so we'll be coming back to this passage and referencing it a number of times. Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 16. Paul writing, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and dominion and power, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Other translations say for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's some powerful promises in that scripture. This is one of these passages of Scripture that you need to just dive into and get lost because there's so much here that's applicable for where we live right now. And yet how many of you know that for every promise of God that there's an opposing force that wants to try to negate or to steal that promise? Amen? John 10, verse 10, the enemy comes only to do what? To steal to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and life to the full. Life to the full. But we understand then that the, that the devil, he's really set on one thing. And that's picking your pocket. That which belongs to you that would no longer belong to you and have benefit. And yet many times I believe that we're looking at or for the devil when perhaps someone else is committing the theft. Have you ever had something that was left over from a meal and you sort of put it in the refrigerator for later and you hid it in the back behind that jar of pickles that hasn't been opened for a year, the jar of the spiced apple rings, which no one eats, and some other accoutrement that might be in your refrigerator. And so you hid the last piece of pie or that holy gospel bird that you were kind of, and it was hidden back there in the corner. And you go back to the fridge and it's gone and you immediately get incensed. It's like, who took my? And then you realize you got chicken grease on your hands and you were the one that ate it. You were the one that actually did the eating. You were the one that did the taking in that particular moment. And I believe that often we're looking and trying to blame the devil for any and everything. Someone said one time that if the devil didn't exist, the church would have to invent him to have someone to blame. Now, we know the devil's real. Thank you. A recent survey said that 
50% of evangelical Christians don't believe the devil's real. That's pretty good camouflage, would you not agree? One out of two don't believe the devil is a real entity, just some philosophy or embodiment of evil. He real. Just break it down for you, make it simple. But many times it's not just the devil. We're looking around, it's, it's us. Last week, I entitled a message, God Called and He Wants His Church Back. I'm entitled this message, God Called Again, He Wants the Rest of His Stuff Back. Because I believe many times what we've done is we've tried to take what really belongs to him and in in a wrong way, we've tried to make it our own or we've tried to earn it or create it. Let me give you some examples. First of all, his righteousness. Now, please notice the possessive pronoun. His righteousness, which doesn't mean what? Yours, it means his. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. A righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Perhaps even simpler, we can find Jesus speaking in John 15. You are already clean Because of the word, I have spoken to you. What does he say? You okay. You're fine. Now, we immediately hear that and we step back and say, I know I ain't fine. I know I was, I was at, I know where I was last night. I know what I watched and, and I'm not okay. Listen to me. We're not talking about the outworking of it. Sanctification. We're talking about justification by faith. We're talking about your standing with a perfect God that regardless of what you do well or what you don't do well doesn't affect how God views you this morning. Now, that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. Because we, come on, we're we're consumers. We see the word free. And we know somebody minimally wants our email address. They want our credit card number. They want us to buy a timeshare. I mean, we see that word free and immediately we become, cynicism begins to rise up because we know there ain't nothing that's free. You want something from me. And yet where righteousness is concerned, it's done. You can't add anything to it. Nothing can be added. Galatians 2. That a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith. It says, we who have put our faith in Christ. We didn't get, we didn't justify it by faith in Christ, not by observing the law, because no one observing the law will be justified. No one. And yet I'm not just talking about, let me just extend this for a moment to expand this, not just the law of the principles and precepts that God has set out for holy living, but how about the laws that you've set out that are now in and over your life? The law is an amazing thing. You see, we feel a lot better about ourselves when we are being obedient to our law. Do we not? I mean, your to-do list becomes your daily law. 
Check, 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 check. Don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. And so we immediately find ourselves feeling pretty good about ourselves. I'm righteous. I'm getting something done here today. Look at me. I'm, I'm productive. And yet, Scripture says an interesting thing about the law. It says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Ooh. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean a curse? And yet, many times you and I feel it. We hear, we hear words from pulpits about blessing and favor. And yet we just feel like we're just kind of waiting for some big cosmic foot to come squash us like a bug. Because somehow we just know we deserve it. Because you're under a curse based on trying to live under the law. Galatians is very clear about this. Paul writing this church, who, who messed you guys up? I mean, we had this thing straightened out that you started out doing this in the spirit. Now you're trying to do it in the flesh. I mean, who, who you've been listening to, what you've been watching, what you've been reading. I mean, Paul called him stupid. I mean, he, he jumped up in their stuff. And yet you and I, many times, it's hard for us just to say his righteousness. Nothing I've done. Nothing I will do will affect that right standing with God. Wow. Oh, but we like to, we, we like to hijack that one. I, I, I want to earn this, God. I love you so much, I want to I earn this righteousness. Son, you don't understand. There is no way. Thanks, thanks for your heart. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like sending a two-year-old down to the kitchen to make breakfast. He'll make a mess, but he won't make breakfast. That's exactly what we try to do when we try to get good enough. His plans. His plans. God called. He wants his stuff back. His plans. So many good ideas that we have. And if you don't have enough, then you can go log on to Pinterest. You can go and find out what somebody else is cooking or making, or you can hook up and find out how somebody else is decorating their house. And I mean, there's something that, that oh, I didn't even know. I, we need to do that. So many good plans, but so few God plans. You know, Proverbs 19, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Well, Pastor Jim, how can I know what the plans of the Lord are? Real simple, the ones at work. How about now? The ones at work. They're the ones that prevail. Amazing. My oldest grandson is in this moment right now at three and a half where all of the wisdom of the universe has descended upon him. And so whatever his parents ask him to do, he moves into an immediate mode of an attorney and begins to negotiate. Well, and, and he will even say things like, no, I don't want to do that. Let's do this. And so he immediately presents an alternative to the requirement at hand at the moment. And so it becomes an interesting exercise to help him understand that while his plans are not necessarily bad, 
They're just not the plans that his parents have set out for his little life in this moment. And yet, how many times does God come to us, son, I've got plans for you. Yeah, I know, but yeah, not, not right now. I really want to watch this nasty movie and, you know, I, I really want to feel, you know, finish this bucket of chicken and I really, I really don't want you cutting into my plans right now. So could, could you check back in a little bit later? And, you know, while, while it might not be that extreme, the reason many times that it's so hard for us to step into the plans of God, it's not a matter of the lack of revelation but it's the lack of, God, I'm not really convinced that I'm going to like your plans. You begin to talk to folk about faith and about, you know, you need to come over to my church and what have you. No, you just, I know you people over there. You're going to tell me what I can't do anymore. You're going to give me your list of what's not acceptable if I'm going to hang out there. I don't like your plans. I like my plans better. And you see, for the Christian, many times, it's simply the fact we don't trust God enough. Whether it's, a, whether it's the issue of a life partner, whether it's the issue of a job or movement or, or even the minutiae around our life, we just feel like, i got a better plan. But yet, Jeremiah 29, 11, we know this. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And they're good ones. And my plans have inherent in them, what? A future. Your plans don't necessarily have a future. But mine do. And there's hope that come with mine. And many times because we're not, we're not stepping into God's plans, it's why our hope and consequently our faith is often so stunted. You can't have faith without hope. You can't have hope unless you're hoping in the right things. Because if you're hoping in the wrong things, your hope is going to be deferred. It's going to make your heart sick and it's going to mess up your faith. Therefore, we better find out. Ephesians 5 says this. You better find out what the Lord's will is. Don't be stupid. And God's plans can be known to us, ladies and gentlemen. As long as we're first willing to acknowledge his plans over ours. A hope to which he has called you. Going back to Ephesians. The hope to which he's called you. You see, where there are his plans, there's his hope, as we've already said. Called. The hope to which he's called you. And you see, that hope has in it all three parts, past, present, and future. Interesting. The past, 2 Timothy 1, he saved us, called us to a holy life. It says that this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now you see, the way you and I understand time is chronos or linear time. It has a beginning, a midpoint, and an end. But God has timing quite a little bit different than ours. Kairos time, where it, it's, it's, it's not that same linear understanding. It's always has been, it's not yet. It's right now, yesterday, today, tomorrow. 
And yet we find because God has to break it down for us so that we understand this concept, God's grace in Christ Jesus has always been there for you and I. Always. The present, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God. Pastor Donnell referenced this in her transition this morning. How do we live as aliens and strangers in this world? You're not an alien and stranger in this room, but you are an alien and stranger once you walk, quote, out there. And then the future, Titus 2, while we wait for the blessed hope. Hope, capital H here, which is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is biblical hope. And you see, once again, when we have narrowly defined hope in the temporal, what we've done, we've, we've truncated. We've limited all that God intends for it to be. The ancients understood this. They tied their hope and their faith to something that was far beyond. That passage in Jeremiah 29 11 that we quote all the time, I'll know the plans. What was the context he was speaking? A group of folk that had been taken into exile for 70 years. Most of them were going to die there. That's where they were going to be. 70 years in Scripture represents an entire generation. And yet the ancients were tying that hope to something eternal. And there is no hope, listen to me, past, present, or future, without the revelation and the reality of the cross. Folk in the world trying to find a way to encourage themselves and find hope and find faith, forget it. Because it's only at the cross that it's found. God called back. He wants his riches back. His riches. Matthew 6 speaks about not storing up for ourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust and thieves and all are. But encourages us in verse 20 of Matthew 6. To store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, I believe one of the saddest exchanges that we have made in the church is the confusion, and I'll go as far as to say the deception, of how wealth is defined. How wealth is defined. You know, that's a, in a, in a capitalistic, consumer-driven economy, this is a big deal for us. Because many times we're looking at what someone has in relationship to what someone else does not have. And then we, we begin to draw lines of who's wealthy and who's not wealthy. Of who's middle class, who is lower middle class. Who's poor, who's... I mean, and all of these lines that, quite frankly, these lines shift based on where you live. Based on where you live. I mean, you, you know the government actually says that minimum wage is a salary required for a family of four to subsist. Uh, help me. Uh, that ain't minimum wage. That ain't even sub-minimum wage. And yet, that's how the government defines what, what, what that should be. And so that's a, that's a very wiggly line. Would we all agree with that? 
And yet the sad thing about it, when we define wealth by what we can acquire, then we have limited how God defines what real wealth truly is. Hmm. We define wealth by how much I can acquire. How much can I buy? It's like a 20-piece McNugget. You know, it says right on the box, great for sharing. I know what the box says. But if you ever, you never have, but someone that I know bought the 20-piece. And you open the 20-piece and it's just like, I'm wealthy. All these glorious chicken parts. Feets and beaks right here. Don't know what it is, but it's fried. It'll be fine. And you, and you sit there and you dig into your 20-piece box and you're feeling real wealthy. Until you get down to about the last three or four. And you don't feel wealthy anymore. You just feel sick. See, that's what, that's what wrongly defining wealth will do for you. It not only is a sickness, it will eventually make you sick. Revelation 3, speaking of purchasing. Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich. <laughs> Everybody said, I nut going to go buy me some gold tomorrow. These dollars ain't worth nothing. Not talking about going out and buying gold. Because God says, buy it from me. Buy it from me. I'm the only source whereby which this wealth can come. Proverbs 8.10 goes on. Choose my instruction over silver, knowledge rather than gold, wisdom more precious than rubies. We're beginning to see a biblical definition of riches. Ephesians chapter 2, God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. I love that. The riches of his grace. And we're looking around at heaven and we're looking at you know, gold streets and we're looking at everything made out of you know, precious stones and we... we Wow, this is really impressive. And yet the most precious thing that we'll see in the coming ages will be God's grace extended to you and I. Do you know that will be the most valuable thing in heaven will be His grace that was extended to you. Wow. Ephesians 1, going back to that passage we read, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now this is a problematic passage of whether or not it's speaking of our inheritance or his inheritance? I believe it speaks of his. That he refers to you and I as his glorious inheritance. Now, this is a little bit paradoxical because you don't inherit something when you own it all. Hello? I mean, the earth and all that's in it belongs to the Lord. So it's like, what, what's he inheriting? He, he's already got it. And yet he refers to us as his glorious inheritance. He refers to it as something relational. Hmm. He wants his power back. His power. 
Ephesians 1, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Colossians 2, 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, past tense. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross was a historic event, a moment in time. Listen to me. I realize that you and I still do some type of war and warfare. But somewhere the devil's deceived us to say, you know what? You better get on. You better, mm, you better pray more. You better, you, you better get some zeal. You better raise your voice when you pray. Ah, you better say the name of Jesus at least 14 times in that prayer. And let me just tell you, I spent a lot of my Christian life binding and loosing and loosing and binding that loose and loosing that bind and smacking and walking around and screaming at things, you know, and God appreciated that. But he's looking down like, what are you doing? I mean, it, 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 it's exciting and you feel real good about it, but I already did that. I, 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 you, you don't understand. It's all defeated. I mean, some of us watched the big game last Sunday. And, you know, it's amazing that when the clock ran out in the fourth quarter, you didn't see any teams go back on the field and continue to play. Did they? No. I mean, it was, it was interview time for one team. But you didn't see them go back on the field. Let's, let's run the clock back and play it some more. Let's just see what will happen if we add two more minutes to the clock. No, they're not the rules. You see, what happens is when the clock runs out, there is a winner and there is a loser. At Calvary, there was a winner and there was a loser. And the game is not still being played. The game was played. There was a determination that Satan lost. And yet, we continue to try to add something to that. We try to add to our righteousness. We try to add a little bit of our own power in there. Shandai! God's like, that's so cute. Again, it's like a two-year-old being a ninja warrior. It's so cute. He's not going to hurt anything. It's done. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. He has authority. His authority, not your authority. Your little tin badge, your Barney Fife kind of thing going on. Got my bullet, Ange. Got our Bible. It's his authority. John 10, I lay down my life, but I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about, you know, all the little, you know, rent cops and all the little people that say, I'm in charge now. But the reality is anybody that's got authority to say, you can kill me, but I'm gonna, when, when the time comes, I'm going to get back up. Now, however the world defines authority, they've never defined it that way. Because there's no one that's ever been able to do that except for Jesus Christ. 
Wow. The idea of his completion. You see, with that authority, when, when Jesus said it's finished, he wasn't just referring to his tenure as a human. Well, when he said it's finished, he was saying the purposes of God have now been fulfilled. Not just in my life, but in yours. That his completion. Philippians 1, being confident that he who began a good work in you. Who began the good work? He did. You didn't. He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And you see, it's only when we can accept and revel in that finished work that we can really fully accept his rest and his peace. You see, at the end of six days, God stepped back. God wasn't tired. He's God. But God stepped back. He rested because he was what? Finished. And yet for you and I, we put our head on the pillow at night. We haven't, we, we haven't finished the day. We're worried about tomorrow. We've got our email there on our, on our smartphone right by our bed so we can snatch it up first thing in the morning and see all those important advertisements that came in overnight. It's never finished. And this sense of incompleteness in our life, it carries over. why he said in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, and I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You see, the world, again, the, the world's just full of artificial flavors and additives. Things that, you know, you eat long enough and you'll grow a third arm. And there's all kinds of substitutes for rest. You need a more comfortable chair. You need another pair of shoes. You need a massage therapist. You need a vacation. And yet, how many of you have actually been more tired trying to get rested? You go on vacation. All right, I got, I got six days. I'm going to rest now. And you come back in a lot worse shape than when you left. Why? Because his peace yields rest. Why in Hebrews 4, it says, strive to enter the Sabbath rest of God. But you see, what sets up that rest is what? His completion in your life. God called. He wants his stuff back. You know why he wants it back? So he can give it to you. Every one of us in this room are guilty of some petty theft. Righteousness. Trying to earn it ourselves. Free just can't be free. Our plans instead of His. Certainly I've got a better idea about how this should work. The tragedy of substituting our definition of real riches... For his definition. Power, victory, authority, completion. All his, not ours. Finally yielding his peace and his rest. <laughs>